Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts, and my co-host calling in all the way from Amsterdam, Alon Ben-Joseph. Today, we are joined by our good friend, Guy Bove, and I'm going to toss it over to my Dutch maestro to introduce the man of the hour today. Welcome, Guy. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Has been quite some time since we've uh, seen each other and spoken. Where do we catch you in the world today? Today, you're catching me at home, uh, about halfway between Geneva and Nyon. So for our listeners that are a bit confused because Guy Bove is known in Switzerland as Guy Bove. <laughs> Guy, you have a amazing track record. Um, I've, I've, I've been criticized by our dear listeners in a positive way that I rave too much and that I'm too happy and too positive and, and, and I don't criticize enough. But the problem is we have such amazing guests on the show that I am a huge fan of the majority of the people on the show. <laughs> so there's not much to criticize. And you, unfortunately, are one of them. So sorry, dear listeners. I will promise next episode I'll be more critical. And uh, don't worry, I have enough to criticize Rob about. So the next Q&A episode, I'll do that. But Guy, you are amazing in my humble opinion. You've worked a very long time in the watch industry. If I recall correctly, I know working with you at IWC Schaffhauser, Chopin, Ferdinand Bertou, which is part of the Schaeffele family, Breitling, we've worked together, and Tag Heuer, and... I always joke around that you always flabbergast me, but that's actually one of your company names. Please <laughs> tell us who you are, why you don't sound Swiss, why you have an alter ego that's called Guy Beauvais, where it's <laughs> not your name. Um, and I'll shut up now. So my given name is Guy Beauvais. It was given to me because my parents are American. I grew up in England, and so I've been called Guy since... Uh, I'm not going to mention dates, but, but uh, quite a long time now. And uh, when we moved to France, uh, my classmates gave me the alter ego name Guy Bove. Um, and so that's it. So I was born in the USA. I've been working in Switzerland and in watches since 1997. Uh, and I've worked at those companies you mentioned, uh, plus a design studio where I initially started my career and where I fell into the world of watches. That's amazing. And where did you pick up your beautiful accent you have now? Where about in the UK? Because Rob is so happy that he has a fellow countryman on the air again. Well, Rob, um, to cut to the chase, I picked it up in Rickensworth. Um, but it's been adapted uh, in the canton de Schaffhausen, canton de Genève, canton de Vaux. Uh, and in France, so it's, uh, it's a blend. It's very nice. It's somewhat more attractive than my uh, corrupted Irish Northern English brogue, that's for sure. Although mine has become slightly more pan-European as I've moved around. It used to be a lot thicker when I was a kid. I find that you speak really good English for Northern Irish brogue. Uh, you are very kind. Yeah. I'm I actually understand kind of him. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's a weird combination. You see, I was born in Dublin. I grew up on around the edge of Manchester and my parents are from Norwich. So I've got a bit of all sorts and my girlfriend's German. So that obviously uh -huh. has had an effect on me in the last few years. That's for sure. Clarified things probably. Yeah. It's a bit of a mess. Guy, if I call you a designer, I don't think that serves you justice. So tell us 
what makes you have such a long enduring love affair with watches what is it that you love about it and what do you actually do in the watch industry okay that's i'm going to try to try to work through that maybe chronologically might be easier uh, i trained as a product designer and before i got into product design i i mean since my early years i mean i have pictures of myself when i was two or three with hammers and things like that i've always liked to know how things work and I used to build stuff, and I thought initially uh, in my teens that designing was basically how to draw stuff you build. I always wanted to be a designer, and I thought to do that you had to study engineering. So in fact, my, my first degree includes a few semesters of engineering, but I realized pretty early on that, that it actually wasn't much help with uh, drawing stuff that you liked. So I changed to design studies after i finished design school which in, um, incidentally wasn't switzerland uh, it used to be called the art center europe which was a subsidiary of the art center college of design in pasadena california so they closed it down while while i was there and i had to finish in pasadena but i did come back to switzerland my first let's say real job was at a total design studio run by a guy named Meat who has stayed undercover uh, for the best part of probably four decades, but he's done a lot for the watch industry. And that's where I learned how to design watches. You know, I got there and, and uh, we were looking at the chiffre breguet and hands and indexes and all that kind of thing. And it probably took me two or three years to be able to design a watch quickly um, effectively so that all the proportions worked and everything so that's where that's where i learned how to design watches um but in that studio i was also working on things like packaging like displays uh, three-dimensional logos uh, accessories for the watch industry we also had photographers in our team graphic designers so i was exposed quite quickly to pretty much everything that helps a watch company work after about four years, I was hired by IWC Schaffhausen to set up an in-house design studio. And that was sort of diving in at the deep end. But um, because all of a sudden, I wasn't just designing all those things, but I was also in charge of running external graphic design teams, uh, talking about typography in detail, uh, going to the printers to make sure the color matching was correct, working on our own boutiques and displays and everything around the brand. So that was um, not only the first time that I was actually doing all the 360-degree um, vision of a brand, but uh, also working with external partners on that, running a whole in-house team, and working, of course, with all the team players in the team, marketing, um, production, engineering. We have a really fabulous team there. So that's where I got into doing more than just designing watches that really is what drives me it's not it's not i think you can design the best watch in the world and if nobody knows about it it's like you hadn't designed it and you can also design a maybe not so great watch but have an amazing team around you doing the promotion doing the marketing doing the advertising doing everything and everybody hears about it and maybe it's the best thing on the market so i think working in-house and being exposed and involved with so much of the brand uh, has really been an amazing experience. And that's that's what drives me, uh, let's say, 25 years on today. You started back in 98. It's indeed a quarter of a century anniversary for you. 
I would love to do a deep dive in the actual watch designs that you've done. Because if I remember correctly at IWC, you have also worked on the Tuno-shaped Da Vinci. Is that correct? That is very correct, yes. Which was actually a, a, a beautiful 3D sculpture. Would you mind telling us how you experienced that challenge from taking it from the 1985 iconic uh, Kurt Klaus legendary round design with floating lugs and a perpetual calendar watch to designing a tribute to him? Because I believe the initial model that you guys designed and launched was a to know chronograph perpetual calendar with the infamous uh, Valjoux 7750 with the perpetual calendar that Kurt Klaus designed, and you guys actually engraved his face on the case back. And then you made a whole family out of it where we even saw three-hand male and smaller-cased female versions. Would you mind telling us how how that went, how the evolution was, and how you've experienced it, and what challenges you encountered? It's a huge gap if you look at the at the uh, floating log round version. But uh, there's a piece that you forgot in that history, which was, I believe, a 1969 hexagonal shape watch, which we in fact did a reedition of in 2008 as part of the as part of our anniversary celebrations. So the way that pro- project started out was, I looked at the 1969 one, I looked at the floating log one, uh, I also looked at at a what you know what would I mean it's pretty hard to know what Da Vinci himself would have done, but there's also his name in there. So it isn't it isn't just a, it isn't just a watch to to my mind, like pretty much all the projects I do, I try to uh, imagine what's the background of the thing and what's what's the background of a collection that you called Da Vinci. And so I, I I didn't know exactly what we were supposed to be designing, but for sure in 2006, I believe, uh, it probably was not the um, a slight evolution of the of the round floating lug one, especially when the first Da Vinci model was a hexagonal watch, which was very much uh, in, in the spirit of the, of the 70s, in fact. So what I looked at was how... how um, you look at the shape of the watch, but what what, what I looked at is how do you, how do you make a modern looking watch fit on the wrist? And the floating lugs was one solution. If you look at the first Da Vinci, you'll see that the strap is also um, quite well integrated, and so that's that was actually the driving thought behind the watch. So if you look at the if you look at the two thousand six model, the one that that we worked on. Um, you'll see that the the lugs are, uh, if you want to call them that, they're incorporated into the design of the watch, but they're also given prominence uh, if you look at it from the side and even from the top in the three-quarter view. And one of the interesting things about that watch is the way the strap uh, fits into the watch, and it actually does partially fit into the watch because it's it's um, the connection between the strap and the case is hidden by an overhang in the bezel. So... Uh, and although the strap looks integrated, it actually will fall down to a 90-degree angle, uh, so it basically fits on any wrist. So that's where, that, that's where the idea for the, to continue the, uh, let's say, the well-fitting Da Vinci uh, code, uh, that's how that came into it. And then um, 
in 2006, we were sort of right at the beginning of the, um, you know, let's say more modern watch phase, more three-dimensional watch phase. And uh, I wanted the watch to look sort of like a, it's almost like a shell. Uh, so it's a shell that fits well on the wrist. And um, and then, of course, it has the opening for the glass. When you look into the opening, there's a few ideas that came from Da Vinci himself. And if you look at the hands on that, on that watch, you'll see that they're shaped like uh, a pen nib. Uh, that Da Vinci might have used. So there are some connections um, in there to the name. And if you look at the typeface, you'll see it's quite a particular typeface, um, which was, uh, and the idea was to go back to sort of the beginning of, um, of let's say, semi-modern printed numerals. So, so there's a lot of sort of history bound up in the watch. And although it's quite a modern watch, it does have uh, sort of classical ties, and some modern shapes which are linked to um, very old ideas such as the pen nib. So that's those are the those are that's the sort of background information around the design of that watch. Um, but then there's further things. If you look at the perpetual calendar, for instance, if if you look at the the Guilloche design, you'll see that the Guilloche design is actually taken from Da Vinci's drawings for a never-ending. Um, thread like a screw thread so even even within the classical ideas such as Guilloche you'll see uh, details which are at the same time quite modern but also very rooted in history so I don't know if that's the kind of information you want to hear about about the Da Vinci or or uh, if there's something more I can uh, give you to put your mind at rest about this design this is exactly what I wanted to hear. So thank you for that. This is music to my ears. I love this fact, the philosophy and the spirit and the challenges behind a design. Um, for our dear listeners that, that are maybe are not that familiar with the collection or the watch we are talking about. Um, if you want to Google while you're listening or afterwards, you want to take show notes. So the initial designs I was talking about in 1985, you could type in IW3750. So those are the original perpetual calendars by Kurt Klaus. And the watches that Guy worked on in a, um, a, a chronograph version are, for example, IW3764, the three-hander is IW4523, and I'm very quickly looking if I can find the initial OG Perpetual, and I believe that's the IW3762. So sorry for the intermezzo uh, guy. Thank you so much. Would you like to mention another IWC watch? Because you have such a long track record, and I kind of want to do this exercise with every brand <laughs> you worked with. So this, and, and we tried to keep this at one hour. So um, is there any other IWC you want to highlight from your hand? Although, of course, uh, I was in charge of design there, I have to say that all the work, all the watches that we worked on were done as a team. I had a team of five or six product designers. And uh, the particular, Da Vinci in particular is a case design that, that um, uh, which I came up with the idea. Um, and then a lot of the detail work was handled between myself and the, and the designers who were basically allocated to each collection. So um, another watch that, that we worked on quite heavily was were, were the ingenieurs, mm -hmm. um, and which 
uh, we relaunched in 2005. Mm-hmm. And those I found very interesting. I still have two of them today uh, because I tried to do a lot with those watches. We tried to to capture the, uh, let's say, the German engineering spirit, uh, of, of course, of, of the engineer, but also of the brand. Um, at the same time, we were, you know, it's an anti-magnetic case, which made it quite thick. And so there was a lot of work done on how to uh, make it look good on the wrist uh, while housing all the mechanics. How do you upgrade or not? Uh, I don't want to use the word upgrade. How do you, let's say, bring into the 2000s a design which was born in the 70s? We well know that some brands don't, don't actually make the attempt to do it. Uh, some brands have tried to do it. Uh, we did do it with the ingenieur. We we started with the, I believe it's a 3712, but uh, don't hold me to that. And then we did uh, three hands. We did seven-day power reserve. We did chronographs. So we did quite a quite a big collection around the this, uh, let's say, revamp of the 70s ingenieurs. And I think we came up with some quite interesting pieces, new materials, uh, and some products that we designed uh, together with Mercedes-AMG to accompany the, the, uh, that partnership. So there's a lot of interesting work there. And then, of course, we did a lot of work that, that you almost can't see that we did on the pilot's watches and the Portuguese, um, especially on seven-day power reserve models um, and perpetual calendars and so on. So there's a lot of, I mean, there are some places, notably the Da Vinci and the Ingenieur, where you can see the changes and other collections where the idea was to keep them evolving not lose what people loved about them uh, and simply let's say adding in more technology on the movement side uh, slight refinements on the cases and so on so it's a it's a very it was a very interesting let's say six years of of my life um, where I think one of the learnings is when you want to when it's a good idea to change something and when it's a good idea not to change something. So I think that's one of the the most valuable lessons I've learned over the years. You sparked so many questions now (laughs) because I think you're referring at the engineer IW3227. Ah, yes, correct, 3227. Which I've owned three times. Ah. (laughs) And the third time I let it go, it was really because of the chunkies, but I love, love that watch. I think that's the most beautiful IWC from the... 2000 for our listeners that are maybe not that familiar and if they want a prediction from me which watch to collect and soon will creep up to vintage neo vintage grab these pieces and our dear listener and my friend Wouter from wrist icons actually doubled up he has two he's also a huge fan so this is a shout out to him he will love it when he hears <laughs> this episode 42 and a half millimeters it's 14 and a half millimeters thick it had the legendary 8000 caliber and i believe you guys used the 80 110 in this one which had the amazing spring bar on the central rotor as a shock absorber a peloton winding system so both ways so i have two questions on the design because three actually the original engineer from the 67, so it's not the original. I mean, the, the engineer originated in the 50s meant as a, a spirit of the times like the Milgau for engineers to to fight magnetism in labs. Yeah. But in 67, IWC jumped on the, the integrated race bandwagon and knocked on the, the infamous Gerald Genta, the late Gerald Genta, to design the SL, the Jumbo. And I believe the first one was even Quartz. I believe so as well. Yeah, which I've owned as well. <laughs> Question one, 
How, did that weigh heavy on your shoulders to step in Gerald Genta's footsteps? I think I was too young to realize. Okay, brief answer. And I want to compliment you because kudos, you literally took his spirit, the soul of that watch, and took it to the modern times of the 2000s because you made it edgy, but it's literally there. Yeah. Then second question, did you design the font of the 12 and the 6? I'm, I'm a sucker for fonts and typography. Big one. Regarding fonts, I would say that literally almost every collection I've ever worked on, I did design the typeface for, uh, and not just an IWC, so yes. And the other interesting thing about that typeface was um, AMG actually used it, and I believe still uses it, on all of the AMG cars. They do. They actually do. I don't know many... Guys that own an AMG, but in the US, my friends <laughs> actually love them and they still use them actually. And I love that font. Guy, third question. And I'm sorry, dear listeners, that is becoming a bit of a uh, monologue and I don't give space for Rob to ask questions. But I said I've been, I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, Guy. Third question. And I, I guess this is the $1 million question. Why the five drill holes on the lunette? Why? And how much time did go into making that metaphorically star, five-pointed star on the bezel? Why? All right, I'll, I'll give you the, the background to that. The background to that actually happened before my time. Uh, it happened because there's a, a theory at IWC, which was, which was given to me by the head of the product uh, management team, that uh, if you look at the way the original jumbo bezel is screwed in, you don't know where it's going to stop. And so if you have an even number of holes, if it doesn't stop exactly at 12, you have an off-center bezel. If you have an uneven number of holes, your eye doesn't look so much for the symmetry. So this is why there are five holes. The thing about the Ingenieur 3227 that we're discussing is that it does have a screw-down bezel, but it, the bezel has a bayonet system, and so it actually does stop at 12. But despite that, the, the link was to the, the spirit of not having a symmetry, or let's say an even number of holes, which in the case of a, um, let's say, a, a true thread, uh, you wind up with you know one hole not exactly a twelve, and then all the other ones are a bit off. And so that was the reason before the five holes. To tell you how long it took to come up with five holes, I think this this was not a lot of time. It was more like probably trying a different number of holes, and then hearing the theory from our product team, and coming back to five. Thank you so much. And I, and I know obviously it was a rhetorical question that you. <laughs> design fonts as well intermezzo is your favorite netflix episode ever if you watch netflix the series abstract with the subtitle the art of design and then second season they started in 2017 and 2019 the last ever episode became my favorite episode ever have you seen it guy i have not i believe that oh. while you were watching that i was most likely throwing sticks into Lake Geneva for my dog. <laughs> so both you guy and every listener on here that loves typeface design or anything design or watches, watch the last episode of season two released in 2019. And it's the episode called typeface design by <laughs> Jonathan Hüffler, H-O-E-F-L-E-R. Google it. Um, highly recommended. And it's 
became my favorite episode, obviously in the first season, the second episode was Tinker Hatfield, <laughs> which is, do you know him, Guy? No, I do not. That's uh, the, 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 the living legend at Nike. And I'm a, I'm a huge uh, sneaker head. I love watch design the most, but then it's sneakers and architecture. So, but okay. Um, I will mute my mic again. Guys, should we move on to the next watch brand? Is that Chopard? That is Chopard. You want to highlight one of your favorite designs there? I guess Mila Migda you worked on or LUC, LU Chopard? I think my favorite thing about working on Chopard, and there are a lot of favorite things there because what was, uh, I think, what's really amazing about but Chopard is um, the Schofield family, uh, first of all, loves, uh, loves of course, their brand. And they're actually interested in doing the best uh, we could with each of the products there. And I think the highlight, I mean, actually, I have a few highlights of my time there, so I won't even, I can't even get into them. But what I, what I do like is if you look at the DNA behind the LUC collection, uh, you'll see that it's expressed uh, in different ways throughout every single watch in the collection. And I'm talking about going from like a 1963 or a tribute to uh, Louis Ulysse, um pocket watch through to an engine one and, you know, passing passing by all of the, of course, the horological complications. And so if you look at them carefully, if you look at the numerals, if you look at the hands, if you look at the uh, the bezels, the, 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 the case, um, Anything about them, you'll see that the the same principles behind the lugs, behind all of the shapes and the typeface and everything is carries through, but in very different ways. Sometimes very classical with the enamel dials, sometimes very modern with with the numerals and the indexes actually etched into the glass. Um, if you look at the horns, you'll see that they can be very classical, and then they can also be very modern. If you look at the engine one horizontal, so um, very interesting let's say, thought process behind those models. Uh, and of course, I think some really good times with the with the revival of the Imperial collection and the relaunch of the Happy Sports with the automatic movements and so on. So there's not a particular highlight. There's really a lot of watches uh, that I like and that I really enjoyed working on. Uh, if I had to pick one, I think one of the mo- most interesting ones for me is the first 8HF, which is the high-frequency 8 hertz movement. Uh, with a case which in some ways is very classical, in some ways uh, ultra-modern. So maybe one to look at there. Was the difficulty in designing and in the evolution of both the Happy Sport and the Mille Miglia, which is going on, the same complexity as, for example, the pilot watches at IWC? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, um, I always use a, metaphor of the Porsche 911, right? It's an evolution, never a revolution. Did you experience that as well? And is that limiting for a creative designer like you? The Media Media Rings had been through several phases and also had several different, let's say, directions for the collection in it. there's There's the sort of classic design, and I believe that the numerals on that model were taken from one of Mr. Schofield's cars from his collection. And then on the other hand, there had been some more modern pieces slightly uh, just before that. There was the GTXL, which was in existence when, when I arrived. And so it was more like, um, let's say, 
breaking the collection into two sort of clear directions, one more modern, and you can see the results of that in the, I believe, still current in the Minimilia GTS family. Um, and then the classic direction where we uh, revamped it slightly, we slightly um, we made the curve, let's say the form language, a bit more tense, a little bit more dynamic. Uh, we changed the dial slightly to bring uh, to bring it in line with the sort of mental idea of Italian typefaces and, and flair. Uh, and then, of course, there was the super fast collection that we worked on. So I, there's maybe not so much weight on the shoulders because the, because the collection was already sort of uh, it already had different models in it. So it wasn't like there was one look and feel to carry on. It was more how do we how do we help these looks and feels evolve into a current collection so that's that's more the work that we did there uh the pilots collection was uh i think we probably shouldn't go backwards into iwc but that uh, there was a lot of discussions going on there at that time a lot of people don't know that ferdian Beltou is fully owned by the Schiffler family and i don't even know if it's the chopard group are they literally separate entities because I, I believe officially you moved out of Chopin into Fedemo 2. So did you do things simultaneously, or is there literally a wall in between? Uh, there, there, isn't a, there isn't a wall in between. Let's say that we started the project undercover, but using people from, from Chopin in different areas of expertise. And then when it came out into the open, it became more of its own thing. But uh, so, the, so it, it is, a, of course, it's within the Chopin group. At least, I, I believe it is. I mean, it was a thrilling project to, to be involved in. I, I, I can imagine, because uh, Rob and I extensively discussed uh, the brand during one of our first Q&A episodes where we covered the GPHD, where yeah. number 2 was nominated. Uh, technologically, it's mind-boggling. It's amazing. I love the octagonal shape of the case. I, I had some criticism on the design. Rob is even a bigger fan. And since I'm not giving him any leeway on this show, Rob... Please, you take these questions on Guy's time at Ferdinand Bertou. Well, yeah, Alan's right. Um, aside from completely monopolizing the show, I don't mind that at all. It's fascinating to listen to you both talk <laughs> and uh, clear that you have a great relationship uh, that spans many years. But yeah, Ferdinand Bertou was one of the real success stories of recent times for me uh, for many, many reasons. I think that it the brand turned a corner in recent years. And uh, I'd just love to hear exactly... Uh, what your involvement with that brand was and exactly what you foresee in its future. The future for me is uh, difficult to talk about since, since I'm not uh, involved with it. So that's, that will have to, um, you'll have to discuss that with the, with the people uh, currently running the brand. The involvement was, I mean, it was, it was quite strong. I mean, it happened a long time ago. I won't tell you exactly when, but, but, uh, Mr. Schofele asked me, I mean, he told me that he that he owned the name and the brand, and he asked me to put together some ideas of what a product could look like. And it was really, I mean, fascinating to try to uh, get into the mind of Ferdinand Berthoud uh, via his writings, via his drawings. One of the fascinating things about him is that rather than hide his knowledge away you know and keep it for you know keep it for his own use and, and his family's posterity he 
wrote about it, and I, I believe that that his treatise on adjusting watches was still a textbook in the Swiss watchmaking schools until the fifties or sixties of last century. So, so he he was sort of the definitive uh, author on how chronometers uh, should be adjusted and, and run. Most of his career was involved with precision, and in fact, he he, from what I understand, he sold pocket watches and uh, and clocks to the nobility in order to fund his research into um, into chronometry and so it's almost the opposite of, of uh, what a lot of uh, people and brands have done since then uh, so it was amazing to look into all his work and try to come up with a design language that I hope he would have been proud of or at least acknowledged today you know almost 200 years down the road so that was the that was the thinking behind it and that led to um a whole lot of a whole lot of design choices around the watch uh, the shape of the watch the hands um the dial finishes the typeface uh you know the engravings uh, even i mean uh, the markings everything so there's a lot of a lot of inspiration from Ferdinand Berthu himself and his nephew Louis, um, but that was, let's say, modernized without without losing sight of one thing. Was was the the idea behind the design of that watch was that even back in the seventeen fifties, the idea was that every part of the watch could have been made using simple tools in a hand workshop, and the. Uh, I would say that the learning and the importance of the of the design of that first watch is that um, the result is much more than the sum of the parts because each of the parts is designed to be to be cut basically in one direction to be shaped using quite simple tools and so on. But when you put them all together, um, the idea was since uh, there were no wristwatches when he was alive. The um, the question is what would a Ferdinand Berthu wristwatch have looked like somewhere between seventeen let's say fifty three and and today? So the so the design of the FB one was um, in large part part my attempting to respond to that. You know that's a really fascinating approach to have taken to a watch design in this day and age because we often talk about reinvigorating old vintage designs from the, from the recent past in the 50s and the 60s with modern manufacturing techniques and i think there's a great deal of space and opportunity to do that well and responsibly and to bring some lovely aesthetics of that era into a modern forum but what it does lose sometimes is a little bit of the soul and the heart which can't really be uh quantified shall we say in a component sense you say like the sum of these these elements adds up to something greater than the sum of its parts. And that is, uh, that's the magic of horology, I guess, something that exists between the lines. Because remember a few years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, we're going back when the, the potential of silicon components and dry cut components first started to really uh, drip through to the mainstream consciousness. Many of us, myself included, erroneously believed that that would be the end of traditional watchmaking. Of course, silicon components and silicon oscillators and these very complex pieces that could never be made in any other way or on any lathe in the world were going to take over. Now, foolishly, on my part, I hold my hands up. I 
kind of forgot that we'd been through this with the quartz crisis and survived and watchmaking has changed itself and become something new. But even today, we see the headlines grabbed by these new age technologies replacing certain handcrafts in the craft of horology in a wider sense. So just recently, Omega announced its new um, its new uh, balance uh, complete with its hairspring and this new uh, dry cut form of a silicon hairspring on top of it and a new regulating organ. And it's fantastic. And it's really interesting. And it does push the boundaries in that direction in the same way that, say, Frederick Constant's monolithic oscillator, which is a, a highly complex silicon component in a very affordable watch, relatively speaking, does something new and fantastic. But these pieces, they do lack a certain soul that Ferdinand Bateau has always had. And I think the question was, could the aesthetics match up to that spirit and that harmony and that horology? And I think that under your direction, they did. Do you think that it will serve as inspiration to more brands to eschew this modern technology and to go down a much more traditional, like authentically traditional route in the future? I think I would just like to come back to one of the things you said. And I, I think using a modern technology does not necessarily mean that you can't bring soul to the design i think i think uh, one of the things that happens is not everybody actually attempts or wants or tries or succeeds in bringing soul to the design but i'm not sure that one excludes the other actually one of the things i'm, I'm not sure about is if you look at a let's say fb1 the first ones i'm not sure that you would actually notice all of the all of the detail work in it, and the idea was not to say, "Hey, look at what we've done here." It's more to bring into what the, you know the final uh, customer is going to see. It's more to bring in a sense of feeling, and not just seeing. I'll give you one simple example: if you look at the the chapter ring on the outside of the dial, it's it's a matte finished sapphire ring. The reason we did that, it's it's painted white behind. So if, if you look at the watch, uh, even in quite a bit of detail, you'll notice that it's white and it's got the the you know the second track and uh, printed on it. What what you feel, but you probably won't notice, is that actually the um, second track is on the matte uh, front part of the sapphire ring, and it's casting shadow down onto the white printing at the back of the ring down below and you probably won't necessarily notice those shadows or the fact that it's transparent but it looks different than if they weren't but that's the point isn't it i think that's really what i was trying to express but i mean for example i think just just that aesthetic you could also achieve in using let's say silicon parts so i think the question is whether First of all, people realize that it's been done in order to emulate it, if, if that's what they want to do. And secondly, would they think to do that? Because that's where that's where you can take the modern technology and bring, let's say, this idea of more classical beauty into it. But you can mimic the aesthetics with modern technology easily enough, but does it have the same sense? I think the word that really sticks out in your description is mm -hmm. sense. And that's it because there isn't a quantifiable value. One isn't better than the other. In fact, in many ways, the modern technology or the modern execution is better if we're talking about like more precise or more replicable, more consistent, for mm -hmm. example. But the sense of craftsmanship mm -hmm. is really what I think those pieces express. And that's, that's rare, obviously, because there are fewer and fewer 
truly artisanal craftspeople in the industry. And there are yeah. certainly fewer pieces that contain only components made in that style. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is, is that, is that model, and I mean oh. that way of doing business, that way of creating something that you think might be picked up by people in the future as new collectors look to eschew technology entirely. In some ways, the answer to that goes back to what I initially said about the Schofield family, who are willing willing to put in the time, the effort, the the expense uh, into doing something they believe in. So I think the answer to your question has to do with is uh, almost with uh, who is the patron of of the of the exercise that that you would talk about. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. So not something we should really expect to see from the major group brands at all on mass. I think as the technology and the cost of some of those things comes down, it'll make it more affordable for some of the other brands and some of what you mentioned to do so. But I think to, I mean, you have to remember that first watch is now seven years old. So you have to think about what happens if you brought that into the future and what could we, what could you do with today's technology, which has moved on again. So I think it's a mindset. I think it's a question of how much you're ready to put into it. I think it's a question of how much you understand what can be done. That that means understanding all the metadata, but also the technology and and finishing techniques. And I mean, really having a sufficient understanding of of. I mean, first of all, having a vision of what you want to achieve and understanding the technology to to get there. Because one of one of the things that happened what happens is typically. Um, you know, if, if you, I don't know, if you go to a sort of to a craftsman who, I mean, they'll typically have things that they're good at, and then to get somewhere else, oftentimes you'll have to come up with where it is you want to go and try to translate, um, try to translate the result into a process that the process that the craftsman can understand. So there's a lot of that behind. Behind this, I mean, one of the one of the simple examples was was the. Uh, I mean, I can give you two at Chopin. In fact, one of them is the sapphire ring around the around around the dial of the Ferdinand Berthoud. Another one is the um, Dauphine fuser hands on the on the whole LUC range, and I mean, I designed them. I designed those hands because I, I thought. We're talking about precision, and I wanted the hands of the, of the LEC range to look like a caliper, you know, like a caliper for measuring distances on a map or on a plan or something. And so you've got the two sort of um, parts that clench the the precision point, right? And uh, so, of course, I could build that in 3D, and I did. And then we went to the suppliers, and I'm like, right, so so this is what you've designed. Now I just want to show you how, how we actually finish a hand and and so um, anyway, after after like a hour of pointing out all the different challenges with those hands, we tried to figure out how to make them, and finally they did make them. But it was uh, it was really a case of understanding how things are made and trying to adapt, you know, processes that are well mastered by craftsmen into doing something that they've never done before. Talking of doing something you've never done before, you have worked with some amazing brands and had a huge impact in some developing aesthetic trends within those brands. But which brand do you look around at now? That, But which brands do you think you would like to work with that you haven't already worked with? And which designs have you seen in the recent years that you would like to work on and take in maybe a different direction or just further down the route they're traveling on as it is? 
Um, well, first of all, the, the thing, I mean, brands, uh, and I, I won't give names because sometimes it's not just a brand, sometimes it's a model, but I, I think you can tell when when a brand understands what they've got in their hands and, and how they're working with it. I mean, at least that's my perception of things. And maybe, maybe I have the feeling that I can understand it. Maybe I, I don't. But I mean, I, th- I do like brands which are sort of developed to, to a thought process. I mean, let's say Orvac might be one of them. Right. Um, then there, um, there are some brands which are, I mean, uh, we talk about Max Max Busser and, and his friends who really pushed the boundaries on a lot of a lot of stuff and um, and it seems like they've come back to a sort of MBNF vision of horology today, um, which is perhaps more uh, more focused and uh, doing really fabulous things you know within that with, uh, for, you know with the, with the chronograph and so on really amazing work um, and then there's then there's um, a very Sort of technical-looking brands, and, and uh, let's say Rebellion might be one. Elise um, um, Nadin might be one, and I think for me, what would be interesting would be to, if you take the way watch parts are made, and take a mindset. I mean, we could we could look at Rebellion, for instance, with extremely uh, almost over-the-top technical mindset. My question would be, how would that look um, if you, if the idea was not about looking, making it look mechanical, but how would it look futuristic? That would be an interesting thought process for me. Do do you understand? I don't know if if I if I'm clear, but I mean, I I think if you look at the sort of very technical look, maybe one of the first examples that I remember seeing, and it was quite a shock, was the year that we launched the we launched the Ingenieur thirty two twenty seven that we're talking about was I believe the year that Hublot came out with the Big Bang. So it was very interesting to see the different um, a different take on in some ways a very similar um, type of watch. And but so that was 2005, 17, 18 years ago now. And my question was, what is the next step for that kind of very technical design? And maybe there isn't a next step because maybe that's the whole goal of it. It's like if we take a piece of metal and we take a lathe and a, you know, and a, a link machine, this is what we come up with. But I, I would be interested to see where the boundaries are on that. Rob, did you see? This is what I promised you high philosophical design thoughts thank you so much guy um i am quite sure we need you back on the show um and i i warned rob in a positive sense i i want to suggest this on air i want to continue our thread of your career so i want to jump now to the next brand i want to park this very interesting philosophical discussion i kind of want to make it a separate episode if both of you don't mind and agree yeah, you got to tell us what it is first, mate. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. You think we shouldn't just jump in the deep end, Rob, without knowing? Is that what you're saying? Definitely not. No, this guy's not to be trusted. <laughs> this, this is like, let's go into that room off the side there, and let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely never ever follow him into the side room, especially especially if you you know if your mind's not straight. <laughs> you definitely definitely don't want to go in there a little bit squiffy. Come on, Alan, tell us what it is. What have you got in your mind? I want to go to pre. Chopin at IWC with George Kern. Ferdinand Berthoud, George Kern comes around the corner <laughs> at the helm of Breitling and you jump to Breitling. 
Yeah, I, I, I saw the I saw the announcement for George's uh, nomination at Brightling, and so I sent him a congratulations message. You know, the, just a text message, and uh, he's like, "Call me." So I did. I went into that side room. We called him, and we had a chat. And it sounded like he had a really interesting project on his hand, and it actually did turn out to be a very, very interesting project. It it, it definitely became um, very interesting because I vividly remember sitting in the first ever Breitling Summit in Zurich, where you designed the, it was then called the Aviator 8. I was blown away by the font again. Can you Can you speak a bit about that? Uh, design request? The design request for that watch, and it's funny because I have one sitting on my desk in front of me. I have the world timer here. Is and and maybe the reason behind the first uh, the first reason. I mean, the first uh, name never timer one. The the idea behind that is we talked. I mean, in our collections, we talked about uh, air, sea, and land, of course, and. In air, we had we had the Nabitimer family, and the and the the idea was, um, if if we take the Nabitimer family, and and uh, I believe the first Nabitimer with the name Nabitimer is nineteen fifty two, nineteen sixty two, nineteen sixty two, I believe. What happens if if you take it, if you just take the name literally Nabitimer as a time in navigation, right? What happens if you take it back to our first pilot watches, which were in fact dashboard clocks? Or watches that you could wear on your leg. So, if you if you take it back to that, what does it look like? So that's that is where that collection came from. The font that we're talking about was if if you go back to I'm not even going to say the early days of watchmaking because it was pretty much the case until the 70s or 80s. There weren't really typefaces, right? There was a you know the the way they do it is is take a, a slide. Uh, film picture of a technical drawing, a very precise picture, and use that as a as a you know as a sort of footer as a screen to create the to create the stamping pads for printing on the dial, and that technical drawing that took a picture of was done by hand. So if you look at if you look at the the numbers and if you look at a, a, the original drawings at a dial manufacturer, you'll see that they're yeah, there's sort of like scratches in all the corners of the numbers because they're the serifs, you know, so that when they when they print on the dial, the ink retracts and it comes to a sharp point to get sharp num- sharp numbers and, and letters. And so today there's a lot more typefaces without serifs than with serifs. Back in the old days it was the other way around, especially on watch dials, because the because I think Partly to do with the production quality and partly to do with the type of the ink they were using, they needed to have these serifs to have the ink retract when it dried into the sharp points. And so I I looked, I mean, in let's say lots of detail at each of the uh, numbers that they were using back then, and sort of redefined them as a typeface. And in fact, we came up with two. Um, if you look at the at the Nebitime, well, let's say the, the Aviator 8 and all the other watches, I, th- I believe currently there's two typefaces, one which is for the numerals, or for the big numbers, like a 1 through 12, and then one which is used in the subdials and on the bezels, which has a slightly different design. And both of those, both of those typefaces uh, I designed 
very closely based on a sort of average of the hand-drawn typefaces that we'd have found at, at Breitling in the early uh, wristwatch years. I love these stories, how you come up with the designs and the philosophy behind it. Um, I can speak for hours. Well, it takes me hours to get through just a single typeface, so yeah, this, this could go on for quite a long time. Yeah, <laughs> which I actually would love to hear. I suggest we do the last leap to Tagoria, if you don't mind. We'll wrap it up. And with the promise, we'll get you back on air as soon as possible. So from Breitling, he jumped to another major Swiss player. Suddenly, maybe the one that does, does the biggest volume out of the brands you've worked for. Did that give you different challenges as a designer? Not uh, philosophically. I think the main difference is that as you say, uh, bigger quantities, more people know what a Tag Heuer Carrera, for instance, looks like. And so the, let's say, the temptation or maybe the successful solution is to uh, not lose uh, all of these customers who know what a Tag Heuer Carrera looks like, but still come up with a Tag Heuer Carrera where you can see the differences, bearing in mind that, of course, the um, the mentality behind Tag Heuer um, with the with the Friedrich uh, Arno's management is to really put it back at the front in the world of watchmaking uh, quality, Swiss made and everything. So there was a there was a a lot of expectation on paying attention to every let's say detail which which would you know, help us position Tag Heuer where it deserves to be. Uh, and at the same time, making sure that uh, the customers who know, um, collect, and probably love uh, Carrera, Acuresa, Monaco, what have you, um, still feel that inf infatuation. At Tegori, if I recollect correctly, you again had to work on the evolution of a legendary watch. And that was the Carrera, which you just mentioned. Correct. I think I think you did a tremendous job. I love that watch, and 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 the original from '63 is maybe the best one. So, for me, as a if I was a designer, and, and I'm not, and I admire you guys very much, I would be I would have sleepless nights. Um, would you mind walking us through what you did with the Carrera when you started working on it? Uh, I don't mind at all. I, th I think um, I I agree with you on the on the 1962 on the 2447s. I mean, you have to realize back then very, very a much smaller watch than you would think, a much smaller watch than it looks like in the pictures, a much slimmer watch, uh, box glass, extremely thin indexes and, and hands. And one of the things that stood out in my mind when you look at those first, the very first Carrera chronographs is that the the idea of the chronograph is quite secondary. I think the first thought that comes to mind is uh, amazing proportions, very reduced quantity and thickness and of information, uh, which helps with the elegance. And and then only afterwards do you see, oh yeah, there's subdials and pushers, but those are not the things that jump to mind. And that was... Uh, and then, and then there are some, you know, specific details like the por portions between the long 
uh, and the short um, lines in the in the uh, seconds track and the typeface and the you know the size of the numbers and everything, which are which are really amazingly proportioned and uh, and I think uh, Jack Hoyer's best work. Um, and so the idea was, how do we translate that? Uh, in the world of today's sizes, I mean, Tagore has not been known for making necessarily very small watches. So, how do we, how do we make a you know a forty two millimeter Carrera um, with a modern, um, very ultra reliable um, automatic movement? So, automatic already is adding about two millimeters to the thickness of the movement. So, how do you, how do you make that watch um, which doesn't have a box glass? Uh, you know, so there's an extra thickness with the metal bezel and so on. How do you make that watch live up to the elegance of the 1962 model and also look like the successor and future vision of um, the Carreras, which we should probably not forget we were making already quite a few of in the current design when when uh, when I arrived. So those are all the things which, which we had to manage to do. Um, and I think, by and large, the results turned out well. I think uh, we introduced a new foreign language on the case, which is not noticeable to, uh, I think, to, again, it's not necessarily noticeable to the consumer, but but you can feel it. And uh, one of the things you can feel is that the the horns today, the uh, the facet that swoops along the case goes from one horn all the way under the bezel to the other horn, whereas uh, in the 1962 model and all the Carreras until uh, the relaunch in 2020, um, the horn stopped at the bezel. So it goes straight up and hit the bezel, and today it swoops under that, and uh, which gives a more modern, more fluid design to the watch. Uh, much shorter horns than we ever had in the past, which makes the watch very wearable. Uh, so huge emphasis on ergonomics. Every every let's say every um, angle on the case is is designed. So if you look at the end of the horns, that shape that you see, which is a cut off of the horn, that shape is actually designed to look like that, and then the horns are taken from that shape. So it's sort of the opposite of previous models. And then inside the dial, there's a, a huge amount of hidden work, and uh, all you have to do is, is sort of zoom in on a Google. Um, search picture of the dials and, and, and look at a, look at one of the indexes, for instance, and you'll see what I mean. And this is, again, a case of understanding what you want to achieve with the design and working with the supplier, in this case, the index supplier, to get to uh, a shape that they didn't know they could do. And and this is in a you know in a reasonably priced uh, in-house manufacturer chronograph, so it's really quite uh, something I think that uh, that we've managed to do with the um, with the Carreras. I mean, if you if you go into more details, you can look at the finishing of the of the dial. Um, we have a much more present second track on the outside of the dial by having a less sloped flange. Uh, it's a flatter flange and it looks more like a car speedometer. Uh, the hands are a modernized 
take on the original hands. You can see the black line running through them now. And so there's a bit more of a speedometer feel to the watch. And at the same time, the subdials, even though they're now 3D, they are uh, all the markings and the numbers. And again, the typeface we can talk about are very refined. And so sort of like the 1962 model, it is a chronograph, but that is not the main thing that it is. And so no, I think everywhere you look, you'll see quite a quite a number of details that will pop out at you. Thank you for that. Again, music to my ears. I hope our listeners are enjoying it as much as I do. Um, I see we're running out of time and, and we're passing the one hour. You and I, I had the privilege to have a private discussion and presentation from you <laughs> about the current Aqua Racer, which I think you've done a tremendous job. I kind of wanted you to share this on air now, but it's actually, it goes very deep, the philosophy behind it. So it needs time and it needs time to breathe and absorb. And I have a zillion more questions. I wanted to ask you, what do you think of the current state of the industry? Where are we going? Do you have tips for youngsters listening to the show? What watch would you wish you've designed that you didn't design? What watch do you still want to design? But I'm going to park all of them. Guy, I want to thank you so much for sitting down with us and sharing your passion and your knowledge with us and especially the listeners. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, as you pointed out, I've, I've been in this world for a long time and I'm, I'm happy if I can help uh, your listeners and our listeners maybe understand more of what goes on behind these brands and behind what we try to do in the design world. That's exactly the purpose of this podcast, to share passion and knowledge for everything watchmaking. Um, I, I, I hope to welcome you back very, very soon on our show again, Guy. Um, thank you to our listeners. Please do send us questions for the mailbag for this specific future episode with Guy as well. Guy, can we find you on Instagram? Are you, are you a fan of Instagram? I'm, let's say, hidden on Instagram. You can find me on, on LinkedIn quite easily and on Facebook. Okay, so it's G-U-Y-B-O-V-E if you want to find them on LinkedIn. And if you like what we do, definitely subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to leave a rating. Rob, you take it out. Thanks, Alan. Thanks. I was wondering, is he going to do it? Is he going to go for it? Is he going to rattle off our Instagram addresses or leave it to old motormouth over here but no if you want to get in touch with us if you want to ask guy any questions for the next episode upon which he features then please get in touch with even me on instagram that's rob nuds at r-o-b-n-u-d-d-s or at alon ben joseph that's a-l-o-n-b-e-n-j-o-s-e-p-h or you can contact us via email i'm there at rob at therealtime.show and you can find alon at alon at therealtime.show we'll be back soon until then stay safe and keep on ticking